You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Chapter 11 is where we find ourselves. We've been working our way through John's gospel. We've been working our way through John chapter 11. And we pick up in verse 38. We get to the the miracle. If you would stand with me as we honor the, the reading of scripture together. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister, the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. You have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you sent me. When he said, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come out. The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we... We thank you for your word. Your word is is truth. Your word is good. Lord, I I pray that that as we work through uh, this text this morning, I pray that you would help us, that you would guide us, you would lead us to truth. Lord, I pray that in all of these things, that it is the name of Jesus Christ that we receive glory upon glory. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish these things and even more than we can ever imagine through the proclamation of your word. We pray uh, these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. may be seated. Let me ask you a a question. And that question is is this, a, a question that you've probably heard several times in different ways. And that is, how much is enough? Now, when I ask you that question, how much of what is enough? Perhaps the first thing that you think of is money. How much money is enough? What about power? How much power is enough? What about influence? How much influence is enough? What about shoes or cattle? What about guns or purses? Purses hit a, hit a cord, I see. 
Guns didn't. That was good. Have you ever been asked that question, though? I'm sure we all have. When I was younger and, and I listened to, I, had, I, I would have countless CDs, music, right? That's what they put music on for the younger ones. And my, my parents, they, they couldn't understand. And they would say things like, how much is enough when it comes to your music? Don't you have enough to listen to? Where, where does all of this stop? It seems like we always have our eyes on something, don't we? Is what we have ever really enough? When it comes to money, there are uh, few, right? They're going to say that they really have enough money because there's always something that we could do with the money that we don't have. If we had more money than we do, we could go on this vacation, or we could buy that kind of car, or on the flip side, if we had more money, then we could give to this cause or that cause. I don't think that, that people always think this way, this how much is enough thing for selfish reasons, or at least that's what they tell themselves. I think they, they think, hey, if we, have, if we had more, we would give it away. And that probably does become a little bit of an excuse to be selfish in the present. We say, well, I don't have more than I have right now, so I guess I can't give it away. I have to keep it and use it for this or that. But what if we take this question and we turn it around and we ask something a little bit more spiritual? Like, how much faith is enough? I know, I know what you're thinking, though, right? Your mind is theological. It's saturated with scripture. And I say, how much faith is enough? And you say, well, the faith of a mustard seed would be enough, right? Because the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. That seems to be enough. But I, I don't think that the answer to that question is, is so simple. And I, and I think that, the, that we misunderstand Actually, what's happening in that mustard seed passage in Matthew chapter 17. If you want to look there for a moment, this might be one of the longest introductions you've ever heard of a sermon. But we're going we're gonna to get to the text here. Uh, Matthew 17, I'm going to start in verse 14. Uh, we read about a man that comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus to have mercy on his son because his son is suffering from seizures. Now this man, apparently, he took him to the disciples, but the disciples uh, couldn't heal him. They couldn't deal with the, the issue, the possession. And Jesus then says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. So then, later on, the disciples come to Jesus in private and they ask Jesus, what's going on here? Why why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we help this kid? Now, I would contend that a better question would have been to ask why they could do those signs in the first place. But that's not what they asked. Jesus says clearly that they couldn't cast it out because of their little faith. And then says... In verse 20, for truly I say to you, if you have faith 
like a grain of mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So let's turn back to the question, how much faith is enough to heal the boy from seizures? Just a little? Not much at all? And the disciples even lack that much? Is that the point? Perhaps think about it this way. In the story, who had the faith? Whose faith in God was perfect? Jesus. His faith was perfect. Notice that the contrast between everybody else and Jesus. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Jesus says, oh, faithless. Right? What does faithless mean? No faith. Faithless and twisted generation, he calls it. That's everyone. And then Jesus turns to the man and simply says, bring the boy to me. And the boy is healed by Jesus instantly, the text tells us. Let me ask the question again. How much faith was enough? And the answer is the faith of Jesus was enough. I think that's the point. The point in that text isn't that we are to be conjuring up faith in order to do great things. But that we are to turn to Jesus who is strong when we are weak. Who can do all things. And who we can do all things through. Because of his strength, not our own. Beloved, I so desperately want you to see this. That faith has an object And that object is Jesus Christ. Faith is not some kind of magical soup. And the more of it that you have, the more miracles or great things that you can do. In that narrative, the the disciples' private question revealed everything that we need to know. Why couldn't we deal with the boy's infirmity? The answer is that in some respect they were self-reliant, at least just a little, and they were solely to trust in Jesus. That's faith's object. That's the point. Let me just give you one more example here, and then I'll explain what all of this has to do with our text. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can, just to even see the headings. I think it's helpful. I've been doing this uh, kids and adults daily devotional podcast. And in that podcast, we're working through Mark chapter 8. So it's been on my mind. But it is a good illustration here of what we're, we're getting at. The first thing that happens in Mark chapter 8 is that Jesus feeds thousands of people with very little for the second time. The Pharisees then come to Jesus and argue with Jesus and demand a sign from heaven And Jesus refuses to give it to them. They wanted to just argue. Certainly they lacked faith. Then Jesus and his disciples get into the boat and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are all bent out of shape because they they forgot the bread. They only had one loaf and it wasn't going to be enough. And they were talking about these things. And as the story progresses, Jesus reminds them about how many times he fed thousands of people with very little. And the implication is clear. 
If Jesus cared enough to take care of their hunger, don't you think Jesus would take care of you as well? And Jesus flat out asked them, do you not understand? Next, as the chapter continues to unfold, Jesus heals a blind man. But something interesting happens here. And and that is that the the healing occurs in stages. That the man is is healed. He can see, but he, he says, I see people, but they just look like trees. This is the only time this happened, the healing in stages. It's the only report of it. It's not, in any other, it's not in any of the other Gospels. And the reason for it is to illustrate that the disciples' faith, over, and over time, they would start to see things more clearly. Next, Jesus and his disciples are walking along. They've been walking for a, a day and a half or so after this. As they're walking, Jesus asked them a, a question, and he asked them, who do, who do people say that I am? And they answer, they give him various answers. And then Jesus says, well, who do, who do you say that I am? And they answer correctly, they say that Jesus is the Christ. But yet Jesus charges them to tell no one. And he tells them this for the reason that the disciples, they confessed Jesus to be the Christ, which is right, but they needed Christ to continue to instruct them in order to understand and gain clarity to what exactly it is that they were confessing to be true. In other words, they needed to see the object of their faith more clearly. They were only seeing things in part. And for them to go and declare Jesus to be the Christ was right. But they still needed to grasp what this meant. The Jews at the time thought that the the Christ or the Messiah would come to, to liberate them from Roman oppression. And if Jesus was the promised Messiah, they thought that he was, uh, people would think that he was some uh, type of military leader that would ultimately free them from Roman control, that he would be a, a revolutionary. Jesus came to free them from something far more oppressive. And that is the power of sin and death. All of this has to do with faith. Specifically, the object of one's faith. I want to know why we keep putting so much emphasis on the quantity of faith. When what really matters is that one is, that one's object of their faith is in the right place. It's it's having faith in the correct object. Let me say this another way. The how much question is the wrong question. Because Jesus is enough. And the more we look to him, the more we rely on him, the more we plumb the riches of his glory, the more we experience his strength and the more we experience his victory in our life. So what does all of this have to do with John 11? Well, we have been working our way through this text and it has been leading up to the resurrection of Lazarus. 
We've seen throughout all of this the ultimate hope in the Christian life, which is the fact that Jesus gives life. We've seen the fact that Jesus cares deeply for those who are his. It might not seem like it in the moment, but that doesn't change the fact that we are deeply loved and deeply cared for. We have seen Jesus minister to both Martha and Mary in very profound and uh, powerful ways. We've seen the, the power of good theology in the midst of suffering. We have seen the power of a, of a God who knows what it is to be human, who perfectly sympathizes, who perfectly understands what we are going through. We've seen a God that that isn't moved in the moment by emotions as we are, but a God who perfectly gets it and shows comfort to the downcast, just as he did with Mary. And now, Jesus gets to the tomb. And we are told that it was a a cave, a a stone was against it. And Jesus didn't really ask them to to go and, will you take the stone? He, He tells them, take the stone. And at this point, Martha protests. And she reminds Jesus that her brother has been dead four days. And there would be an odor, a smell. And and at this point, I think we need to pause. And we need to be reminded of Jesus' earlier conversation with Martha a little bit. Martha hears, right, this is at the beginning, Martha hears that Jesus has, has finally come. And she runs out to meet him. And she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. She says that and then immediately following that, she confesses that even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. We talked about this before. She wasn't asking God to raise Lazarus from the dead. We know that because of her protest at the stone being removed. It was four days. Death had been final at that point. But what she was doing is confessing that she was aware of Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. She isn't denying that Jesus has the ability to heal anymore. She knows that even even if somebody came right at that moment and was sick and needed healing, Jesus would do it. She was confessing this. It actually is Jesus here that turns the discussion to resurrection when he tells her that your brother will rise again. And then Martha confesses again her belief in resurrection. So if you're counting, this is, this is twice, right? Martha is saying, I believe. She believes in the resurrection. And, and this word from, from Jesus, this good theology about resurrection, your brother will rise again, is something she needed to hear. Then Jesus goes on and he explains further. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? You believe in the resurrection of the last day? I am the resurrection and the life. All resurrection is rooted in me, he's saying. Whoever believes in me, right? This is the object of your faith, right? Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? If you're counting again, this is the third time. And this is important. Because in the the Greek, the word 
Believe and the word faith are the same word. So notice that we're talking here about faith. And when Jesus asks her if she believes, he's asking her if she believes that he is the resurrection and the life. That's what he just said. Do you believe this? Her response, I believe that you. Notice again that faith has an object. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. It's such a beautiful statement, isn't it? Three times she confesses her faith in Christ. Three times. Now, how is it then, in a matter of just minutes, she's trying to stop Jesus from opening the tomb of Lazarus? Your thought about that? This is a lot like we talked about before with the disciples in Mark chapter 8. They see Jesus do all of these powerful things. Healings, right? He's, he's doing all of these things. He's providing food for thousands of people with just a, a little food. And then he, and he does this, not just once, but he does it again. But then when it comes right down to it, and they were faced with some even insignificant trial in their life, it is interesting that right there, right after this, Jesus says, who do you say I am? Right after they express this this moment of, of lack of faith, who do you say I am? Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples, declared him to be the Christ. Just as Martha does here. But Jesus tells the disciples, you need to keep it to yourself. In other words, it was good that they knew who the object of their faith should be. But they still had a lot to learn. They didn't see things clearly. And clearly Martha is in the same boat. She knew something of Jesus. She knew what she was supposed to say. She knew what she was supposed to believe. And she really believed it. Over and over, John emphasizes. She knew who the object of her faith was. But the question is, and I think this is something that we need to ask, is was he really? I mean, is the question, did she really not have enough faith? Let me ask this. How much faith in Christ, right? Faith has an object. How much faith in Christ does it take to save one? Right? This, is, this is initiating one into the Christian walk, right? It takes just a little bit, if we're talking quantity, a little bit to move them out in. How much does it take to save your soul? Quantity is the wrong question. It takes faith in the correct object to save your soul. Faith always has an object. The reformers talked about saving faith having three parts. And I, and I think this is so important to, to, for us to, to grasp what it means to believe. What it means to have faith. The, the first part had to do with knowledge of the facts. Right? To, to believe anything, 
You need to know the facts surrounding it. The fact is, Jesus claimed to be the Christ. Obviously, Peter knew this. Martha knew this. Peter, or Jesus was clear enough in his proclamation that he, he declared himself to be the Christ. They knew this is what he was saying. The second part of saving faith is believing that to be true. And both Peter and Martha expressed this as well, didn't they? We believe it is true that you are the Christ. Jesus asked Martha if she confessed this, and, he said, and she says, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is two of the three parts of saving faith. She understood the facts and believed them to be true, and so many people stop there, or they think that they just have to believe them more intently or something at this point. And I think this is where a a lot of the discussion about quantity of faith comes in. People say, well, I, I believe that Jesus came into the world, he died on the cross, but then they want more. You know, enough isn't enough. If only I had more faith, then I would be more effective at evangelism. If I had more faith, then I would be then I wouldn't take this medication for this ailment or that ailment. If only I had enough faith, my, my cancer would be healed. If only I had enough faith, I could do miraculous signs and wonders and have extra blessings. If only I had enough faith. I mean, one could go on and on forever. Now, Jesus tells Martha, and this is when she cautioned him when he wanted to open the tomb. She said this, or Jesus said this, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I think there's something interesting here in this statement. Did Martha believe or not? Is she going to see the glory of God? Yeah. Yeah. Did she believe enough? Jesus didn't say, didn't I tell you if you believed enough, you would see the glory of God? That if you believed. Jesus just asked her if she believed a few minutes before, and she said she did. And the question is, did she? I'm going to contend that she did. I think that's the point here. Our faith, Martha's faith, just like the disciples, just like Martha's, is imperfect. And when we think about it, why wouldn't it be? We're not perfect. Why would our faith be perfect? We continually fall short. We know the right way to behave, yet again and again we fall short. We, aren't, we know that we're not supposed to do things like lie, but even without thinking about it, we tell a little white lie. We said that we did something when we didn't do something, and then we just move on. And we think it's inconsequential because it didn't harm anybody. And we don't give it a second thought. I, I used this illustration the other day. A teacher asking a student if, if they did their assigned reading. It's almost just natural to say when it's an honor system thing like that, that you say you did when you didn't. Sometimes we do those, those things and don't even really feel bad. And then, and then later on, it, it takes something that, that comes up in our lives and say, oh man, actually we did lie about that. 
When Jesus said you have little faith in Matthew chapter 17, that if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Perfect faith moves mountains. That's the point. When the disciples wonder why they couldn't heal the boy or, or cast out the demon, it's because their faith was imperfect. Did they believe in Jesus? Of course they did. They were also trusting in themselves. And Jesus was, was highlighting this, a faith that is self-reliant in the least is, is imperfect faith. Now, I said that there were three elements of saving faith. The first has to do with the knowledge of facts. The second is believing those things to be true. The third carries with it the element of reliance or trust or resting in. It's parachutes that parachutes exist. It's knowing that parachutes are to save your life if you need to jump out of a plane because it's heading toward a mountain. It it believes those things to be true, but that parachute saves, saves lives, but it's also taking things a step further and putting the parachute on and actually jumping from the plane. It's trusting in it. It's relying in it. It's resting in its ability to save you. When it comes to salvation, it is not only believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. It's not only believing that Jesus saves those who trust in him. The demons believe that. It actually recognizes that you are a sinner deserving of a devil's hell and that your hope is only in Jesus Christ. It's the difference between saying that Jesus died for sinners and believing that Jesus died for your sin because you are a sinner and that your only hope in this life and the next is that Jesus saved you. It isn't only believing that Jesus died on the cross, but it's believing that he died for me. My sin deserves Punishment. My only hope is to rest in what Christ has done for me. This is saving faith. But even this is far from perfect, isn't it? Let me just see if I can illustrate that. There there might be one who is ready to, to climb a mountain. They've prepared, they've taken classes, they've got all the supplies Right? They've, they've practiced in, in class. They have the ropes that will hold them. They know how to use all of the tools. They know that if they fall, there will be a, a roach, a safety harness that will catch them. They've, they've practiced all of these things in a, in a controlled environment. But when it comes right down to being way up on the mountain, looking down to the depths below, this one knows that if they fall and their safety line doesn't catch them, if their harness doesn't work properly, that they will surely die. And they doubt. They have faith. They're trusting in their equipment. It it got them up the mountain. But in that moment, there are doubts. We are all like that, aren't we? 
We've got there. We're on the mountain. We're climbing. We've trusted our equipment. We, we know this. We, have, we trust our, in our equipment is, is Christ. We know that if we fall, he's going he's to catch us. He's there for us. But yet, we doubt. And we start relying on ourselves and we trust in our own ability. And, and in that moment, we, we start grabbing toward other things to pull ourselves up instead of trusting in our training and trusting in all of those other things. When all the while, all we need to do is just rest in Christ. Thinking about verse 40, we often say, uh, something like, seeing is believing. Have you heard that phrase before? Uh, seeing is believing. But in verse 40, uh, Jesus kind of changes things up here a little bit, doesn't it? He essentially says that in, in spiritual matters, believing is seeing. No wonder why our faith is imperfect. You don't see it till you believe it. Remember, when we speak of belief here, we're also making Reference to the object of our faith. Belief doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not the quantity. It's the object. And there are those that will latch on to this believing and seeing thing. And they'll come up with all sorts of like name it, claim it type of doctrines. If I believe in something, then it'll happen. This, this, this stuff is so prevalent all around. If we only believe enough, then we'll get it. This is the, the basis of, of much in the charismatic movement. If, if we only had more faith, then the, then the reason you're not healed is your lack of faith. Or on the flip side, the reason that you're doing these things is your great faith. We hear language like this often. If we want God to do something, then we're going to have to believe for it. Am I believing for a better job? Am I believing for God to send renewal or revival? We need to be careful with some kinds of this because if we're not careful, what happens is is this kind of thinking and this type of uh, talk takes and, and turns our attention from the true object of our faith to a different object. And it actually, the, the object of our faith becomes us. And we become the linchpin. We become the ter- determining factor in what God does. If we believe enough, then God will give us a better job or whatever the case is. The object of faith is always Christ and it must be evident in how our faith is lived out. Our faith is lived out by trusting in the object of our faith. Let me ask you this. In this story, in John chapter 11, which, by the way, is the seventh and final sign in John's gospel, it really introduces us to the the final week of Jesus' life. But who is it in this narrative that had perfect faith? Whose faith was was perfect? Whose trust in God was was right? Listen to Jesus' words again. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And he's reminding her. Jesus isn't after her to have some generalized belief, but for her to trust in Jesus. 
Didn't I tell you that if you believed in me, right, the object, in me, you would see? That's the idea. Whose trust in God or whose trust in Jesus was perfect? I mean, we've given Mary and Martha the benefit of the rope. We haven't talked negatively about their faith. We've talked about the fact that they were in grief. We use the, the phrase theological shadows. That's not an excuse. It illustrates that this was an occasion for which things in their life were exceptionally clouded and their faith was far from perfect. Mary and Martha are like you and I. Our faith is imperfect. In moments like this, what do we do? You turn to Jesus. You must remember his words. We must remember what he came to do. We must turn to him. Let him comfort us. Right? We saw this in both Mary and Martha. He's the one that brings comfort. Why? Because he's the object of our faith. We trust in him. We don't don't reach out and and long for uh, self-esteem boosters in the midst of all of this trouble from other sources. We come to him. We trust him. Let me say it this way. Our imperfect faith must always point back to perfect faith. And that perfect faith isn't mine. It isn't yours. It isn't some Christian hero or some author It isn't even John Calvin, it isn't John Owen, but it is the perfect faith of Jesus Christ. Who it is in this situation, who is it in this situation that had perfect faith in God? Jesus. My friends, you and I, we're weak people, we're frail, our faith is imperfect. And this is why we must constantly turn to Jesus, to point back to him. I think this is one of the most amazing things about the gospel. That through faith, that that wonderful gift of grace, faith, that through faith, although imperfect, our sin is given to Christ and he bears it all, past present, and future. But not only that, his perfect obedience, his righteousness, his perfect faith is credited to our account. Think about it this way. Did Jesus love Martha and Mary and Lazarus, that family? Did he love them so much because of the perfectness of their faith? Did he love them so much because of their exemplary faith in God? No, if that were the case, Jesus would have been extremely let down here. And what Jesus taught here is something that we all must realize, and that is the more we look to Jesus, the more we know him, the more we find him worthy of faith. In other words, the more we look to Christ, the more perfect our faith will get. It will never be perfect on this side of glory, but the trajectory of it will be leading that way. This is one reason why we we celebrate the Lord's table. Because we recognize that we are imperfect people that continually need Jesus. We realize that even our faith, even our trust in Christ is perfect. 
We're like those people that are climbing the mountain and in the midst of life's uncertainty, in the midst of those moments, we're trying to grab for anything that we can see to pull ourselves up by our own might instead of just resting in Jesus and trusting in what he came to do, what he came to accomplish. He came to accomplish what we could not. And it's because of Jesus Christ alone that we have a relationship with the Father, that Jesus Christ becomes our greatest mediator, our greatest advocate, because he continually goes for us and continually we rely on what he has accomplished on our behalf. In the Lord's table, is just this, this tremendous illustration of all of this. That Jesus Christ is the center of our lives. That there's so many things in our lives that get out of order. Our faith gets rearranged and different things get, get put too high on the list. And this is an opportunity for us to, to come back to the table and then to think about what Christ Jesus has done for us. That where we were imperfect, where we were weak and frail, and the Bible calls us ungodly, while we were that, Jesus came to, to die for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was spilled for us. The Bible says his, his blood, the, the juice here, represents the, the new covenant. The new covenant isn't like the old covenant. The old covenant says, do this and live. Here's these laws. You obey them and you live. The new covenant is Jesus Christ obeying them for you. And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you rest in him alone for the forgiveness of your sin and the salvation of your soul, then his perfect righteousness becomes yours. His perfect obedience and his perfect faith and trust in God becomes yours. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.